Hi, and welcome to the Dark Industry Podcast, season number four. The Dark Industry Podcast is a collaboration with the Programmers of Color Collective and What's Up With Dogs. It is funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, the BKM and MDM. We thank our partners and supporters for their contributions. Hey, and thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. If you want to support our work, then show some love by sending us a little coin. Click on Support the Podcast on our website, www.whatsupwdocs.com. The next four episodes that will be released over the next few weeks were recorded in 2021. I first like to offer much gratitude and my deepest apologies to these guests who took the time to record interviews with me so long ago. Unfortunately, it was a matter of a lack of capacity and funds that resulted in a delay in the release of these episodes. Also, Renelle Schubert decided to step away from her role as producer. I like to thank her for everything. She was a true partner and collaborator in getting this podcast started. We were a team when it came to showcasing the voices of our friends and colleagues in the field who are not just talking about making a change in the documentary field, but were opening doors and unapologetically creating spaces for themselves and their communities to thrive and succeed on their own terms. I'm excited to let you know that I brought on a new producer who I'll introduce at the beginning of the next episode. I will also continue to create new episodes, but more on a case-by-case basis as time permits. Thanks for listening and on to this episode. This week's guest hails from Oakland, California. Oakland sits in the territory of the Weechen, part of the stolen land of the Chochi Nyo Muwekma Olone, the successors of the historic and sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. We acknowledge the labor and land of the Olohone people whose connection to the land we remember at the What's Up With Docs podcast and whose presence, past, present, and future we respect. One material way to acknowledge their history and support indigenous communities in the Bay Area is through the Shumi land tax. You can make a voluntary annual financial contribution as a non-indigenous person living on the traditional Chochinyo and Karkin Olone territory to support this critical work. In this episode, I speak with filmmaker, mentor, activist, and co-founder of Represent Media, Jennifer Crystal Chen. During our conversation, we chat about how she got into docs, her commitment to advocacy, and the field building and changing work at Represent Media she does. Jennifer's theory of change is rooted in liberation. And in that spirit, the song she picked for this week's episode is by the late, great Curtis Mayfield, Keep On Moving. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in 2021. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. We sure do. <laughs> so we always like to start with giving our visually impaired listeners a visual description. So I am a darker, well, brown skin, black woman. I have sister locks that are pulled back in a ponytail, which you can't see. I'm sitting in front of a 
a Yeti mic and I have headphones on, which are also black. I'm wearing a black t-shirt and I'm sitting in front of a very lime green couch that has a multicolored pillow to the right. And then above my head is a multicolored painting that I did. So that's what it looks like where I'm, where I am. And there may be a cat inserting himself in there at one time or two. <laughs> so Jennifer, tell us uh, what you look like. <laughs> sure. I'm a Asian American woman. I'm in my forties. I have just a kind of like brownish red hair that goes a little bit past my shoulders I'm wearing a polka dot sort of like a dress with like dark blue background and white dots. I'm wearing kind of a, a black dress shirt as well. And my background is actually a virtual background of a Moroccan cafe. So there's a lot of beautiful tile work and some details that are from that culture. And I am wearing a, I guess a, a Fitbit watch. And I think that's, oh, I have a, I wear glasses. And so, yeah. That's All right. Great. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I always start these conversations off with how we met. And I actually can't recall how we met. I think it must have been maybe during the pandemic at a virtual Brown Girls doc event or something, but I can't recall. Can you remember? Yeah, actually, I don't have a great memory sometimes for how or when I met people, but I actually remember meeting you at an industry event a few years ago. I don't know if it was getting real or a different one, but mm -hmm. I remember you because I talked to you and then I took your card and you were so friendly oh. and okay. you were so welcoming. And I thought, oh, here's somebody, you know, with IDA who's actually sitting down and looking at me and talking to me and seems very approachable and very genuine. And so that stuck in my head. And then we didn't communicate because I didn't really have a reason to reach out to you in the mm -hmm. role that you had at that time. And then how we reconnected, I'm not sure, more recently. So that was that was a few years ago. And I just remember, oh, Tony, such a, you know, approachable and friendly person. That That's actually my first memory of you from before we started talking to each other recently. Yeah, <laughs> on a regular, a regular. And we're going to get all <laughs> yeah. into that as, as well. Yeah. And I, I just know that I've always, even though I can't recall exactly how we met, I just remember, I just recall hearing your name in the industry, particularly as someone who, as a filmmaker who advocates for fellow BIPOCs in some really great and intangible ways. So yeah, so that's how I recall, that's my, my recollection of, of like my introduction to you. But okay. So oh, oh, I remember now. I remember now. You were part of the Brown Girls group that was about how to recover from being in the industry. <laughs> oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, we were talking about starting that. Yes. <laughs> and although I'm not, I guess recovering is a very long process. So I guess maybe I'm on the I'm sort of in the farther end of that. I, I didn't feel like I needed to recover from the industry, but I felt like as a person who's working. I mean, although I'm a filmmaker, I do spend a lot of time more on the industry side. And so mm -hmm. I thought maybe it would be good to be in a group where we could talk about and connect around that aspect and not just about the filmmaking, but actually what happens with the institutions that support and work with filmmakers on that end. Right. That's right. That's right. Right. Yes. So essentially for those of our audience who don't know, so we're both members of Brown Girls Stop Mafia. And I, along with a few other brown girls, were in the process of developing a group, essentially a support group for brown girls 
who work on the industry side. This is when I was working on the industry side. But now I, I'm free from that. So, and a lot of the initiatives that we were talking about doing as part of that group were actually are actually being addressed by Brown Gold Mafia in various other ways. So that's why that never continued. So, but yes, okay, yes. So we were like, we were trying to come up with a plan on how people can navigate if they plan to stay in the industry, because I guess we can kind of get into that as well, because I have been out for a year, no, well over a year now. And I feel like I'm on, I'm in my recovery phase, but I'm like, and when I say recovery, I'm actually talking about the, the real life, like trauma that happens sometimes when working in predominantly white institutions, which is something is not really discussed at all. So Jennifer, you want to talk, you know, about that and maybe a little bit about your experience or your recovery? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I guess to back up a little bit, I I had a different career before I got into documentary filmmaking. And so I worked actually with a lot of nonprofits with charities that worked in social services, youth development, economic development, with women's domestic violence shelters and services. So I was kind of working in the sector of trying to make social change in a more direct way and to help people and in the Bay Area. And although the Bay Area is a little bit different than than other areas with regard to the the nonprofit sector and that there's a lot more diversity, there's a lot more organizations that are led by people of color. Traditionally, a lot of nonprofits and sort of this helping industry is also, it comes from a legacy of charity and it comes from this legacy of well-to-do white people basically helping the other less fortunate people. And so in my work in that industry, when I first started getting into this sort of social change work, I came across organizations that were both, you know, organizations that were diverse, organizations that were white-led, organizations that were led by BIPOC, and a lot of the same dynamics and a lot of the same struggles as what I think is happening in the documentary industry now came up in that area. Because the idea is that you're all there to help people to make social change, to kind of create a better world. And yet you're also struggling with those same power and racial dynamics within your own organizations. Mm -hmm. And so that isn't necessarily the same kind of problem in another industry where it's clear that your goal is simply to sell product or to make money. You don't necessarily have a social mission that you're trying to accomplish. But I think that in documentary, there's often this idea, not not all docs are oriented towards that, but there's a large part of the sector that's oriented towards how can we make the world a better place? Right. And so a lot of those same dynamics play out as what I had experienced before. So this is, you know, in matter of speaking, you could say that, you know, this is the, the second industry where I've encountered some very similar dynamics around those kinds of things, around power, around resources, mm-hmm. around racial dynamics and, you know, the other factors, you know, gender, you know, sex, like faith, you know, your sexual orientation and how all that comes together when people are looking at how, how you interact within organizations and throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. So. When you went into the doc space from this, you, went, you, tran- you transitioned from this social justice space into this doc space. Was it a shock to you when you saw that some of the same dynamics were in play? I guess I could say a little bit surprising that I feel the documentary, because it's tied into entertainment, is actually a step behind what's happening in sort of the in the nonprofit industry. In general, the, the the sector that's kind of more oriented towards, you know, working on causes, because 
there's a part of, of the entertainment industry that I think is very commercialized and very mainstream. Mm-hmm. And it's very focused on creating creating products, basically, which we need to some degree, right? We need to sort of fill the time on broadcasts, on streaming channels. We need to create content for things. But there's a part of the industry that's very commercialized. And so that part doesn't really, doesn't necessarily have a reason to respond to some of these social concerns that we have. And then there's sort of the independent documentary sector where a large portion of that, like I said, not not all of it, some of it's, you know, environmentally focused, some of it's politically focused, some of it's, you know, it's not all, I would say, on a liberal agenda per se. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of the sector that, that that falls more on the indie side of people wanting things to be better. Right. There's a whole other part of the industry that's just influenced by we need to get certain information out to people or we need to create more content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this what when you speak about the aspect of entertainment, it makes me think about particularly when it comes to stories of folks of color in this industry. There's a commodification that happens. Mm-hmm. And because certain people have like essentially these racialized identities, then that particularly when I think about specifically about black bodies that were actually were actually physically commodified and how these stories kind of take on even when a filmmaker goes into a project wanting to tell a story about their community, some of the things that they have to come up against are resistance to being commodified. So having a story being geared toward one particular audience when there's actually, maybe they want to have a social justice agenda for the project. And like they want to have that story seen by people like the folks. There may not be, when they're in the room, there may not be, all of a sudden, there may not be funding to fund that particular type of screening. And like, and these are kind of like stories that I've heard even though the filmmaker may be that from that community, they have to kind of like fight to get it seen amongst their community because that is not who the assumed audience is. You know, it's someone who has kind of like a, a voyeuristic lens that they're bringing to the story. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I think that the documentary industry struggles with the same thing that the, in, in some ways the fiction industry struggles with. Mm-hmm. And it's not as obvious. So, for example, it took a really long time to make the Marvel movie Black Panther because people said, who's going to watch this film? Who's going to be interested in this? If it has an all-Black cast, are people going to come to the theaters to see this? So, which just seems absurd now, looking back upon it and looking upon mm-hmm. the sales and how popular it is and how that film has been able to cross over with many audiences of many backgrounds. Right. And the same thing with films that featured women as a primary character in some of the women superhero movies, like Wonder Woman. It took a long time to make that for the same reasons. You know, who's going to come see it? If it's a woman who's a superhero, are people going to care? You know, just, and so the question is, who who is asking, imposing these questions and who's determining whether or not something is of interest and to whom? Mm-hmm. And so I think on a different level in documentary, there's sort of this assumption that, the same questions have come forward, right? In terms of who's your audience? Who's going to come see this film? Are they interested in what's being said? Is this story compelling enough? Is there enough explanation in the film for people to understand the issue or the context? All of these are assuming that that is coming from some type of mainstream neutral perspective. But mm-hmm. I would put out there that that's actually coming from the perspective of the dominant white culture. Right. And that it's not a neutral point of view. 
And so when those questions are being asked, there's a disconnect between who's asking the questions and who the film is for and those audiences. Because I've seen films that were made for a specific community, a specific racial ethnic community. And there were questions from industry partners about that film saying, who's going to come see this? Why would this be of interest? And when they start screening either works in progress or finished cuts, the the place is packed. This is before COVID, but the theaters are packed, you know, there's just like, and because people are hungry for this content. Mm -hmm. And so, and they identify with it and they see themselves in it. And so when the question is, who is coming to see this? Why is this film important? Why is this story relevant? What do you have to highlight in that? All that is coming from a dominant white culture perspective, the majority of the time. Exactly. And even when the data doesn't support that dominant white culture perspective, because there have been study after study that shows that films and TV shows that have a lot of diversity, and you're going to loosely use that word diversity right now, actually have higher ratings. No, films that do feature diverse casts are highly profitable. But when there's a possibility of a Black Panther getting made, or we want to go like way back, well, not yet, the way, way back, Joy Luck Club, like, and, or more recently, Crazy Rich Asians, there's always this question about who's going to see it when the data proves that people do go see these movies. So this is why you know, the white supremacist view can be so insidious because it, it, it actually makes people go against logic. Like if right. they hold right. on to their delusions of superiority, even like they could be making a lot of money on content, diverse content, but the idea that whiteness has to be centered all the time, like will disrupt that. that. Right. And, and I think that that's what we don't talk about a lot as an industry is that that's when you get into the idea of media and media representation as a form of controlling narratives and a way of controlling social positioning and a way of controlling social power dynamics. And, and it's related to a larger society that we're a part of. And so even though, as you said, the facts are saying this is not actually something that is supported. People want to see these films. People like seeing themselves in these ways. They actually, some of these films and programs actually generate more revenue. But there's still this pushback because I don't think we often back up and think about media as a form of social control, basically. Right. It's a social narrative that we're telling ourselves. It's a way to say, this is your place in society. This is how we want you to be. This is where you should be. This is how you need to see yourselves. And so on that level, which is kind of subtle, there's a reason why there's pushback on seeing more diverse and complicated and non-white gay-centered views of BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. Because that's not the narrative that is going to lend to the social control happening and to maintaining the power dynamics that are in place. And I don't think people are consciously doing it. It's not like, I mean, maybe some people are, maybe I'm too naive, but, but, but I don't think people are consciously doing it. I'm not saying people are going out there plotting, saying, you know, we need to keep everyone in their place and we need them to fit their roles. It's more just this conditioning that's happened through the white supremacist culture that we're part of, that everybody gets indoctrinated in from the time that, you know, you come to this country or if you're born in this country from the time that you're born. And so I don't think it's some necessarily some conscious agenda But basically what happens is that it's a way to keep everyone in their place. 
by replicating certain kinds of media representation, certain kinds of stories, basically saying, you can only tell these stories. You can only be seen in these ways. You can only, there's there's kind of a joke that I told with some other BIPOC filmmakers and, you know, Mm -hmm. we joke around about it, but you can name on your hand all the tropes that in documentary, uh, as well as in fiction about each community. Okay. If you're talking about black people, it's going to be about like violence, crime, poverty, drugs, lack of education, right? Yeah. Black fathers. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> when's the last time you saw a film about a uh, Silicon Valley inventor who's a black man? Right. Why isn't there a documentary about that? And I'm sure there are. I'm sure there's like, you know, people who are doing that. And yet those mm-hmm. films are not getting put out there. And yet we keep seeing films about these other topics. If you talk about Asian Americans, you're mm-hmm. going to see some of the same things in a different way. You're going to see things about and, and these are important topics. I'm not saying we shouldn't have films right. about them, but you're going to see films about immigration, going to the home country, you know, labor or sex abuse, you know, uh, like now lately violence against Asia. So there's a sort of a set of topics and history. History is always great because it's done and over with. You can't change it. Right. So whatever's in the past, it's okay to tell about our peoples too, Mm -hmm. but there's sort of a, a limited number of portrayals of ourselves that are considered acceptable and supportable. And things that break outside of that are often really difficult to get funding and support for. Yes. We have to question, why is that? Exactly, exactly. And and this isn't just something that filmmakers are dealing with here in the U.S. This happens across the pond. So I remember I was on a panel or some event for Doc Munich where I was having these one-on-one conversations with with filmmakers of color in Germany and, and throughout Europe. And one of the frustrations that several of them iterated was that they were, you know, they were wanting to tell different types of stories about their communities and some, but they knew if they went in a particular direction, they could not get funding for it because that's not what the mainstream wants to see. And so the question is, why does the mainstream want to see that? And then does that actually support social change that actually helping our communities? And at the same time, I don't, I'm not saying that we shouldn't make films about these topics. It's that we have a disproportionate number of films about these topics. Right. And that we need to expand and broaden the stories that we tell about BIPOC communities to other types of, other types of experiences, other types of subjects, other types of ways of storytelling. As you know, I co-founded an organization, Represent Media, that is about promoting personal storytelling. And there's a reason for that, because I think that personal storytelling has much more potential for nuance and to be able to explore a much wider range of topics than when you're Mm -hmm. looking at people only through the lens of a specific problem that they're facing. Right. So basically, you know, I think that we don't need to just problematize our communities and say, Mm -hmm. we can only see your stories in these, if it's touching upon these problems that we know that you have. So, you know, what about what happens to the rest of our lives? What happens to the, the fullness of our experiences? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So let's get into represent media. So I actually visited your website last night. Well, I've been to your website before, but I've went to the about page and I love the story about the henna and how you all came together with that. So you want to speak to that? Sure. So I think one of the, one of the things is that there's, there's a power behind personal storytelling. And so we try to embed that in everything we do in our website and the way we present and the way that we try to communicate what it is that's important. And so on our website, it's very appropriate that there's a story about henna, which is that there were several women of color who came together in Oakland and 
we were talking about the importance of personal storytelling, the personal stories that we were working on, which are not necessarily autobiographical. They just mean that they're personal stories about individuals, families, neighbors, people in our communities, in other people's communities. They're just not focused on a social issue agenda and lens. So personal stories are not necessarily autobiographical, but we were all working on different forms of personal stories and documentary. And out of that group, two of us, Kashi and I, decided to spend more time to further develop these concepts and to co-found Represent Media. And one of the things that we did while we were brainstorming about ideas, issues, philosophy, approach, is that we would basically dye each other's hair with henna. And so we would take turns in the kitchen or, you know, mostly in the kitchen, the the bathrooms are like a little small for that. But basically there's different ways to do it, but you can make it from powder and Mm -hmm. with hot water and with some other things like tea or with olive oil to help with the paste. And you basically make the henna into a paste and then it's very difficult to apply yourself. And so it's great if you have somebody who helps to apply it. It takes some time to put it into Mm -hmm. your hair. And so that's a great time to just chat with each other, to come up with ideas. The other person does your hair, then you do their hair. It's this whole practice of, you know, it's very, it's very intimate that has been going on for, as we said, for a very long time. This has been a practice that women have done in different parts of the world, Mm -hmm. um, including in Iran and India and China and other places. So it's a very old practice that allows for some space to reflect and to connect to have a certain level of intimacy and freedom around your conversation. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think a lot of, you know, there's some models in Western culture where talking just to talk can be seen as maybe a little bit of wasting time when you're trying to do work or business. Right. But I think actually there's like a, you know, there's different ways to have conversations where maybe they can be, they can go on from session to session. They can have space to grow. They don't necessarily have a direction. They can... Mm-hmm. be more organic over time and not necessarily be accomplishing something that is really obvious. And so I think through that process, we came up with some of the philosophy and the groundwork for Represent Media that continues today. And I think that that, you know, having different ways and different processes, different different ways to look at things, different ways to talk, different ways to connect, different ways to think about how we not only do something, but look at something is really fundamental to creating change. Right, right. It's very hard to create a new way of looking at something or to maybe recreate an old way of looking at something. If you think about it that way, some traditional ways of looking at things from other cultures, if you're using the practices that are embedded in one specific culture. Exactly. As Audre Lorde said, well, I'm going to paraphrase, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Yeah, you you have to come up with new tools and new ideas because otherwise you're just you're building upon a, a, a foundation that's faulty. Yeah, and I think that's the most difficult thing because you have to balance the needs of being in a professional business environment and needing to work cross-culturally with many people. And what people understand is this, you know, sort of this dominant white culture professional business way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So Using some of that, but then also creating room and space where people can have a totally different way of processing, looking, creating, doing work that is not in that specific modality. And that helps to create change in terms of the concepts you come up with, in terms of the approach you come up with, in terms of how do you center yourself, which is an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing struggle to actually reset reset the way that I look at things, mm-hmm. um, even 
not from the white gaze and right. in very, very subtle ways. So there's this project that, that we've been working on um, mm-hmm. that, you know, I actually have gotten engaged with called The Power of Personal Documentary Films. And in writing that document with my co-editor, Chanda, like basically even ourselves being women mm-hmm. of color, I had to catch the writing and say, when we use the word we in the document and we say we, you know, dot, mm-hmm. dot, dot, fill in the blank, you know, we in the industry or we filmmakers or we this or that, or if we just say generally we, and we're not defining who we is, right. I said, who is that we? Is that actually you and me? Mm-hmm. Or is that actually, or is the we taking the positionality of that white gaze? And yeah. how can we, how can we center the article around we, meaning you and me, and not that you know, that third party that isn't even either of us. That's actually not we. (laughs) That's that's actually them. We are us. (laughs) And then that is them, you know, and not to say that we can't work together and we can't collaborate and we can't have really positive relationships between Mm -hmm. we and them. And some people might say, well, that's oppositional. You know, why do you have to separate it that way? It's not because you, you, we, us, Mm -hmm. We all have to be very, very clear about the the perspective that we're bringing to to a situation, but also understand the other, like be very clear where another person is, is starting who's looking at the similar situation because th- this is where I think the conflict arises in on the industry side is realizing that just because some people are fine with touting and speaking about progressive ideals and that's where they want to stop. And if you go in as a potential industry professional and you actually want to, like, to implement some of those ideas and ways of being in, in ways of change and you are under the assumption that everybody's on the same page when you do face that opposition, whether it be like subtle mm-hmm. out and out aggressive, it can be shocking and jarring. And, and I think a little, I'm going to use a C word here, crazy making, because you think that you're striving for this particular goal with a group of like-minded individuals, and you may not be as like-minded as you thought. And a lot of it may be run by this subconscious desire to hold on to power and to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And just think about the power that's laid in the fact that if we is the mainstream white gaze, and then Mm -hmm. the, the implication of that is that when we're talking and writing and doing things, we talk about they, and they becomes the, BIPOC filmmakers becomes those people yeah, becomes the other. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like really strange to talk about yourself as they, when mm-hmm. it's actually, you know, you are actually, they. You know? so I know this is like kind of a linguistic thing, you know, people might say, well, why are we getting into this like kind of naming, but on that very basic mental level already, I've alienated myself from mm-hmm. where I'm coming from. I've already said I am part of that mainstream white culture and I'm not part of that other group of people that is them. And that creates a lot of tension. It creates a lot of problems. It creates a lot of confusion mm-hmm. around how do I still tell the stories about my communities when right. I have to navigate between those two different worlds. Mm-hmm. That's something that I, I wrote about a little bit recently, which is about the fact that a lot of people who grow up either biculturally or multiculturally 
have this, have multiple selves. And yes. Mm-hmm. That's something that is, I think, harder for people who don't grow up with that to really relate to, which mm-hmm. is that you have different selves and some of the values of those selves may actually be conflicting with each other. Yes. The yeah. values may actually be opposed to each other in terms of, let's say, a culture that's very individualistic versus one that's very group-oriented, that's completely mm-hmm. opposed to each other. And not only do you have to navigate in and out of those settings, but you have to be in a setting where you're expected to set aside one of those selves. Right. Which is kind of, which is kind of crazy-making. Like you said, I, you can't bring your total being in. Souls of Black Books, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, well, he asked the question, what does it mean to be a problem? And he's speaking about the double consciousness that mm-hmm. Black folks have. But like, but it actually, some of us have a double consciousness, some have a triple, quadruple. Mm-hmm. You know, we're forced into like to compartmentalize these things that are us in ways that should not be compartmentalized because like we should be, be able to bring the totality of ourselves but this society, the way it the way it is, it doesn't it doesn't allow for that in many instances. Yeah, and and that is crazy making because it's like I am only one person, right? And of course, people say, well, what about the fact that I'm a parent in some environments, and that you know I have to be appropriate in that environment, or in some environments, maybe I'm a you know partner to someone. Obviously, I'm going to act differently at work than at home or in other environments. So everybody deals with that, but there's a whole other layer when it comes around yes. other forms of identity where it's not just about something that everyone has to do in terms of switching the environments. But on top of that, you have a whole nother layer of other identities that you feel that you have to like manage, organize, suppress that are seen in negative ways. in a lot of, a lot of times that you'll get labeled a problem or an issue if you try to express yes. them. So, so those other identities are problematized and you have to manage them in a way that other people don't necessarily have to. And so a, a lot of my approach, I think, is about how can we become whole? How can we, as, as, as BIPOC filmmakers, become whole and become one person? How can that one person have, uh, see, see the multiplicity in the world, but, but have a specific point of view that is what I see, that is what some people in my community may see? How do I express that and stop taking on other points of view and other things that are not part of how I actually experience life? And right. so I can understand how other people navigate the world. I can learn about that. I can have compassion for that. But ultimately, there's a way and a lens and, and, a, and an approach that I have to the world. And that often gets set aside. Right. And I think that that, that is part of the problem. That is part of the disempowerment mm-hmm. is being able to say, no, I am one person. You know, I embrace the totality of everything that I am and everything that I see. There's a very specific point of view that I'm coming from. There are certain experiences that I've had that need to be expressed in my work and in other things that I'm doing. And mm-hmm. that is really powerful rather right. than holding back parts of ourselves because it's not okay due to a legacy of oppression around certain, you know, certain races, certain identities, mm-hmm. certain faith groups, you know, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So is that why you started Represent Media and also what, you do got a, a talk a little bit about how you how you spell represent because you just don't have represent is re hyphen present. So yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. I think, I think that I'm assuming that's very deliberate because I don't think you do things very deliberately. But like there is a point to that, and I just want you to talk about that. Yeah. So the the name represent media actually. It's interesting, as you said, it has a hyphen in the middle. It's R-E hyphen present. 
And we have a naming guru who's one of our uh, the women who who helped us to start. And that's Adele Ray. And she's also a documentary filmmaker. And for some reason, she's really great with naming things. So every time I need a name for a project, an organization, something, I go to Adele. So that's a pitch right. for her. If you need something named, she, for some reason, she just comes up with really great names. Mm-hmm. So we did intentionally have that hyphen present and then media because we said, well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to represent ourselves. We're also trying to represent our images and media. Mm-hmm. And so it's both, right? We're redoing the way that we're seeing and we're also presenting ourselves and 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 representing ourselves. So yeah, that's very intentional. And I think that with regard to your other question about why I'm interested in doing the work, it's very simple. I don't see stories of myself and my family in media and even in documentary. I came from a family of well-educated immigrants from Taiwan. And my mom's family is originally from China. They went from China to Taiwan during the communist revolution. And then my father's family was in Taiwan previously. And then they both actually came here to the U.S. separately. My father to study for his PhD and my mom on sort of a a post-undergraduate nursing exchange program. Okay. And they're both highly educated. My mom's family comes from, you know, she, they have more means. My father's not necessarily, but they were kind of impoverished, but basically through education, you know, they, they improved their circumstances substantially, but they basically came here voluntarily. There was no, they weren't running from war. They weren't running from the lack of a future where they would be impoverished or threatened with violence. There was no reason for them to come here except for the American dream, right? Mm. That it would be even better than what they had. And so had they stayed in Taiwan, they would have done just fine, maybe even better than had they come here to the U.S. because of a lot of the modernization and changes that happened in Taiwan since they immigrated, which was in the sort of mid-late 60s. And so I haven't actually seen films delving into, you know, the stories of families from that time, you know, what they've Mm. experienced, the children of those families, what some of the implications are of that and coming at that specific time. Because it doesn't fit into those tropes. Right. Right. It's not a story about like, oh, we're like running from some war. We were being bombed and we were like, we're going to starve to death if we didn't leave our country. And so, you know, thank God we came to America. And then here we had such better opportunities. That's the story that is often supported around Asian Americans. And there are many, many people who experience that. And I'm not denigrating that in any way. That story is important. It needs to be told. There are a lot of people who fled as refugees or from wartime experiences and needed to have a refuge to come to. And so that is a very important story, but right. that is not the only story. And the Asian American diaspora is huge and mm-hmm. has many, many different stories. Right. And I just don't see myself and my family, you know, as part of that. And so mm-hmm. it's very weird when you don't see yourself in the media, when basically you don't exist. There's actually... I think hundreds of thousands of people who came during that wave of immigration that my father and my mom came in. And so it's not a small, it's not a small number of people. It's not like, oh, there were a hundred people who came. So, you know, of course your story isn't there. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very strange experience to never see yourself and your stories in the media. And that's what I hope that I can help to advocate for is I think it's really important for people to see this is this is my family. This is my story. This is my community. These are, you know, in the way that I understand mm-hmm. our stories in our community, not from some other point of view that doesn't make sense or that kind of otherizes or problematizes mm-hmm. or diminishes what we've experienced. Right, right. And 
it seems like, well, this, this is my impression about personal storytelling and, and what gets made. It seems like in Europe there, and even, I think I would even say in some Asian countries, there's more of an acceptance of personal storytelling documentaries. Like I have seen, like for example, at the Yulava Documentary Film Festival, I've seen so many personal documentaries where people are using things from like the personal archives, like home movies and photos as a way to examine their family dynamics, sometimes within the context of a social justice issue or sometimes within the historical context, but what that core family is, how it relates to what's happening and their reflections over uh, of a historical events. And there seems to be, there's so many films like that I'm seeing in a lot of European festivals, but also like in the work that I've done with Asian filmmakers in, in Asian countries, there seems to be more openness to that and support of those type of narratives than there is here in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that from the, I don't really do that much sort of on the international level. I mean, there's a little bit of advocacy work I've been doing, but mm-hmm. basically aside from that, what I've heard from other filmmakers though, who are much more familiar with the content and the markets there is that, is what you're saying is that for some reason we've tied documentary here in the U.S. to this impact agenda that the films have to accomplish some type of impact agenda. And if those social measures of change aren't clearly defined and really obvious and tied into some type of measurable way of saying, how did we change something? Mm-hmm. Then basically it's hard to get support for films. And I think in other markets and other countries, what people have said is that other filmmakers, what I've heard secondhand is that they're kind of looking at the American market saying, why are you limiting yourselves to these stories? You know, why, why aren't there these other stories that you want to tell? You know, why is it so basically functional and practical? Your films are so, so practical, right? They have to accomplish something tangible or it's hard to think of them as important. And I think personal stories and personal story films do accomplish something, but they can't be measured in the same way as, okay, we changed the specific policy. You know, we were able to, you know, do something concrete about the environment, you know, as a result Mm -hmm. of this film. It's not that type of impact that's happening, but it's something that's actually quite profound, which is that it changes the way that we see people. And longer lasting. So I'm a, I'm a professor at Saybrook University and I'm teaching a class on social impact. And we were just, I was commenting yesterday on several students' discussions as we're actually talking about this topic and like what in and how impact is measured. And sometimes, and this, this is what I think, and this is what I was commenting to the students. We look for, funders look for easy ways to measure, measure things. And measuring things, unfortunately, can be, well, measuring success. So success for an impact campaign that's easy to measure is how many people knew about the issue before they saw the movie. And then they didn't know, and then now they know that could be used as a way to like measure and, and validate success. So I think it's a it's a, it's two things. It's this focus on it's this hyper focus on quantitative data versus mm-hmm. qualitative data, but also I think it may be just measuring these short term things, you know, where, you know, and which is probably focused on raising awareness about an issue can, it's easy. 
and you could put it in a report. But where some of these more longer term goals, you have to you know be with a project for a minute, and it actually involves more than a yes or no question that can go on a survey, particularly when you're about talking about goals like changing structures and changing behaviors and changing minds, you know, versus did you know, didn't you know, did you like, did you retweet it? You know, so I think it's twofold. Like it's it's easy, it's really easy to hold on to these solely these specific types of measuring success. And also this is focused on the quantitative versus the qualitative. And this hyper hyper valuation of the quantitative, so that's kind of like my assessment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important in terms of looking at how do people measure change and why why do they think that it's even that that kind of change is the right way to measure the impact mm-hmm. of a sale. Right. I think part of the challenge is that the film industry is relatively young, right? I mean, films have started in the early 1900s, let's say, you know, until mm-hmm. the current time. So if you look at an art form that's, or practice, a way of communication that's much older, look at literature, right? Writing, you know, fiction, novels, other forms of writing has been around for a really long time. So relatively speaking. And so when we look at that, at, a, at you know, great books that have really profoundly changed the way that people think, you know, individuals have inspired them and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't look at a work of literature at a novel and say, what are the measures of social impact of this of this novel? And unless this novel can accomplish tangible, concrete outcomes, then we're not going to support the writer in creating this in this this book. Right. That would just be seen as what? Like what you're talking That's about, funny. you know? Yeah. Like, you know, that the, the literature isn't worth supporting unless there's concrete, tangible measures as to what this book is going to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But there have been, you know, revolutions started over books. There have been, yeah. you know, wars like started and ended over books. There have been, you know, complete changes in the way that people see various aspects of society based mm-hmm. on a great work of literature. Right. And so these very profound changes can come from something that you can't actually exactly have that sort of impact measure around. Exactly. And also impact builds upon itself. So, you know, when you're thinking about and examining successful impact campaigns, if you're like truly measuring success, a lot of the times, you know, filmmakers are building and upon the work of that activists have been doing for years, you know, and they're basically making a point to showcase that work. But sometimes it's when the, the film is thrust into the media spotlight and becomes actually somewhat mainstream then that's when action finally happens. But it's being built upon the work that people have been doing for, for years. And like, I always think about Blackfish. Is that for me, that was like one of the first films I became aware of as impact. And primarily because at that time, before it came out, way before it came out, I was living in Tampa, Florida, and I was right around the corner from Bush Gardens. So whenever I drive that way to Bush Gardens, I would actually see people, the animal rights activists protesting for years, you know, talking about the treatment of the animals and, and specifically in regards to the, the, the killer whales, the orcas. And the and when Blackfish came out, it built upon a lot of the work those people have been doing and made, made the issue open the eyes to the issue to folks in the mainstream and then gave people specific actions so they can. So now these orcas aren't being trained and kept in captivity and, you know, and 
living these horrible lives and, and, and inadvertently because of the stress, putting trainers in, in peril as well. So, you know, when you truly, even a film like that, that seems like it had like an immediate impact, like that is, that is not the case, you know? Yeah. The work of many people to try to change the idea that some, that if a creature is just an animal that it doesn't, you know, it's just some dumb beast and it doesn't need any special treatment. Mm-hmm. So it, the seed of changing that concept of saying that, no, these are highly intelligent creatures. They have entire social lives. They have, you know, language. They have all these other things, you know, basically communicating with each other. They actually experience a lot of the same things emotionally, you know, that we, we may do. experience. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that speaks to the power of the power of ideas, Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in the rest of society, there's this idea that we're moving from a production economy to an information economy. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing about like, you know, social media, sort of like the influence of like ideas and that everything's becoming, you know, what you tweet and, you know, the influence that you have with ideas. And so I think in documentary, it would be helpful for us to think the same way, which is that some films change your perception or right. your concepts. They're about changing that information flow of what you what you experience what you think is true or not not in a way where it's educating you per se but just giving you a totally different experience mm-hmm. of something right exactly exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think like that that like changing people's changing people's ideas and their experiences and not by sort of like by just by just actually engaging people in something different Mm-hmm. Right. Not actually having to explain, not actually having to say all these facts and information, not having to say exactly what you have to do. I know we're kind of like on opposite ends of that because a lot of your work is about what do we do, you know, to right. actualize the change. My whole thing is about we have to change the way we speak and think and mm-hmm. imagine and conceptualize things. That's like the very beginning is that we have to right. change actually like that whole intangible way of thinking and being. In order what to actually create about the change, is actually changing culture. Yeah, you know, you're change, yeah. changing culture, and like well, I use I'm using culture from the perspective of the anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, uh, and that's what this is. That's that's what this work is. It is changing the culture, and that takes constant vigilance. <laughs> yeah, and I think and I think part of it is that we say okay, so we say we want sort of like diversity, we want inclusion, these things that you know kind of make me cringe, honestly, because yeah. you know. So <laughs> it's like including and, and diversifying into what exactly, right? So the groundwork, the framework we have is sort of this normalized dominant white culture way of doing things, westernized way of doing things. And mm-hmm. this way is considered normal. It's considered the professional way. It's considered the, the practical way. This is what everyone, you know, just assumes that we do. I think that is actually part of the problem. Yeah. Because that in itself is not diverse. It's not coming from different cultural perspectives. It's not including mm-hmm. other ways of processing, perceiving, you know, interacting with each other. So, so that in itself is saying we all need to fit into this one cultural way of doing things. Yes. One of my favorite phrases to hate is, you know, need a seat at the table. And what I've come to realize is like, I really don't want to be at that table. That particular table is flawed, is, is funky. You know, I'm, you know, I may have a seat, but it may be like the booster seat. You know, I'm not expected to, <laughs> you know, there's a, may be an expectation for me to be quiet. It's like, no, I don't think I want to be at that table. You know, you have to, I think, especially as a black woman, you're expected to behave a certain way, which is just like really obnoxious. 
that in order to have a seat at the table, you have to conform to a certain professional, quote unquote, professional way of being, right. which is that, you know, that's not necessarily professional or unprofessional. Like certain cultures have a certain way of interacting with people, a certain way of talking, a certain way of like mm-hmm. connecting. Some mm-hmm. cultures, it's like, you know, it's, it's considered adding to the conversation when people jump in and cut each other off, right? Other mm-hmm. cultures think that's like shockingly rude, right? So, mm-hmm. so why is the not interrupting considered the norm? Why right. is the not jumping in considered like the, the right way to do things? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's completely saying that that way of doing things is is the normal way. Therefore, the other ways are not normal at all. Not not and in fact prob- problematic. Not only not normal but problematic. Right. If you start acting like those other ways, then there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. You know that you don't know how to like act right and fit in, which is just obnoxious. <laughs> right. In my and speaking directly can be can be seen as aggressive and problematic. Right. Speaking directly, speaking your mind. Oh, like you know, why is that person always causing trouble? Why are they being so rude? Why are they being so like mean or this or that? It's like they're just saying what's on their mind in a very simple, yeah. direct way, or and that's uncomfortable. Saying what's what's happening. And do you do you ever watch? Succession? Have we have we talked about Succession yet? And I, I haven't watched it. I think okay. you mentioned it a little bit, but no, yeah, we yeah. haven't talked Just, about it. Renelle Renelle's a, a huge fan of it. It actually she got me turned on to it, and it's such a good show, but also like a little a little triggering because mm. it is laced with what I call the wasp speak. So you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant speak, and that. And there's this language of like not being direct. And so but when you say when something when someone says yes, it could actually be a no, you know, you just don't know what you're getting because you can't get a specific or concrete answer. And if you do get a concrete answer, it it may not be what it is. So succession like captures that wonderfully because the whole all the dialogue is people saying something and then all the people like muling and speculating about what that person really said, you know, and what they really meant. And they're trying to make a decision to act or not to act best of what they think they thought the person said. And to be honest, and to be honest, that's a big part. I mean, you know, that's a big part of a lot of Asian cultures, honestly. Right. So yeah, you don't directly confront people with things. You don't say things that right. are polite. Okay. You go through like a third party if you have a conflict to try to resolve it. So right. I'm not putting value judgments on, you know, these different cultural ways of doing things, but I just think that we have to be aware of making room for different ways of engaging. Right. 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 And so, and, and when are we demonizing someone because they're just coming from a different way of doing things? And when do we say, okay, this is the way we're all going to do it together in this way. And to just, and, and I think that there's something we lose when we say, okay, we're, we're predominantly going to prioritize this one culture's way of doing things like 90% of the time. Right. Or, or not even just prioritizing, like, this is the only way. Yeah. I think that yeah. people are making that gross assumption, like, this is, this is it. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's about the workplace, but translating that into films and, mm-hmm. and the advocacy work that I do, I think it's the same concept around films is that we need to let films breathe, documentary films, mm-hmm. and allow them to have a wider range of expression, a wider range of how their stories unfold, whose point of view are they telling? If there's things that you don't understand, maybe that's okay. If there's a different yeah. way of storytelling, maybe that's okay. If there isn't like the dramatic arc, maybe that's okay. If there isn't a clear impact campaign with very clear goals, maybe that's okay. Because yeah. there are other very extremely valuable ways of creating documentary films that have a tremendous value, that have tremendous impact, that don't have anything to do with these specific things that we're really accustomed to looking at and, and valuing. 
Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and those things actually will help to embody and express where we're coming from as, as BIPOC filmmakers and capture some of what's happening, you know, or express what's happening in our communities much better than some mm-hmm. of these other ways of, of looking at things and, and doing things and, and processing. Right. And so it's, it's that thing where you said, oh, you have to fit it within this way of doing things or there's something wrong with you. I would say maybe we need more room for doing documentary films the wrong way, actually. Right. What is considered the wrong way? We need more room for that so that we can have more room for how we can authentically embody and express our experiences and our cultural points of view in our films. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you tell us the, about the fellowship that you, the artist fellowship that you have at Represent Media for Oakland, specifically for Oakland artists? Yeah. So, so through Represent Media, I ran a two-year mentoring program and that actually ended last year in the summer. And so it's not currently ongoing. We're currently in conversations about potentially what future professional development will look like. And either with ourselves or with potentially another partner organization. And so for two years, we ran this program called Retake Oakland. Mm -hmm. And the idea of Retake Oakland was to support filmmakers interested in personal storytelling in their documentaries and who are emerging, which basically just means that they haven't gained national and international prominence. Most of them have made, you know, one or two or more films. And so Mm -hmm. it's not that they're students or that they're learning or that they're necessarily young people in that sense. And we had a focus on specific communities that we felt like were perhaps the most underrepresented at the time that we started the program, which mm-hmm. was basically Asian Americans, queer people of color, and people of mixed race. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so often in our work at Represent Media, we're looking at, you know, who are the people that we hear from the least often? Who are the people that mm-hmm. we feel like are not sort of being seen in in our field as much? And so we decided on those particular groups to sort of help to highlight and to support. And uh, everyone was tasked with basically creating a short film, filming it. And during that time, the pandemic hit, which made things very challenging. Right. Editing and finishing it and basically having some type of community screening or engagement with the community partner, one or more community partners. Mm -hmm. And so it's this two-year cycle of basically creating and supporting filmmakers to get out a short film. The short films, I think they end up being anywhere from roughly about like seven to, uh, I think the longer one was maybe like 30 minutes or so. The minimum was five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the logistics around the program. And I think the main thing was really to build, uh, oh, and then everyone was, had to be connected to Oakland in some way. So either they like lived in Oakland or they did a lot of work in Oakland. Mm -hmm. The idea was to build sort of like this local cohort of emerging people of color filmmakers. Right. And our approach in general is that because it's really, I think it's really important for people to have a local base and to connect with people that they can work with locally and that they will continue to know over time. And a lot of programs are sort of national in focus mm-hmm. and not to say people don't connect, you know, across geographies and, you know, be able and are able to collaborate on projects that they do everywhere. But I'm really a huge fan of like place-based programs Mm. that really connect people who are here, who are together, who can form a community in a place together and can, you know, easily see each other for things like, okay, let's go for a walk or let's go for coffee or Mm -hmm. I'm having this thing. Can I, you know, just give you a quick call and you're in the same time zone. Mm -hmm. So I think that having a locally based cohort like that is really important. So basically I think to really encourage and support that 
that that storytelling from BIPOC communities, you know, from that non-social issue lens, right? From mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. we just want to hear stories of people in, in the Oakland community. And all the stories were of people in Oakland. So mm-hmm. that's the other thing is that we often have people coming from outside of Oakland to tell stories about people in Oakland. Yes. And it's like, okay, yeah. we have filmmakers here. We can tell our own stories. It's okay. Yeah. Oakland has a lot of filmmakers. <laughs> Yeah, we don't necessarily need, like, I mean, it's fine if other people want to come and tell stories too, but, you know, like, to support the local storytelling of our own communities by our, our own filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So so now I want to go into the another campaign that you're kind of, like, leading or mm-hmm. the Sabaya. So for people who don't know, can you kind of give a brief explanation of what happened? And I could start, you know, the film premiered at Sundance last year and was immediately met with um, controversy because some of the women who were featured in the film came forward and voiced that they had not given their consent to be in the film. And so tell, tell us about your role and also how people can connect with that and yeah. update as well, too. Yeah, so the unfortunate thing is actually that it screened at Sundance last year, and it took until an article in the New York Times in September. So, you know, more than six months later, they basically, yeah, yeah, they basically highlighted some that some of the women who were filmed as part of that, that documentary repeatedly did not give consent to appear in the film. Mm -hmm. And actually, initially, after they realized that they were in the film and they complained about it, it took months before they were actually blurred out of the film. Mm. Yeah, mm. or blurred in the film, I guess blurred I would say. Yeah. yeah, so that they were, it took months before they were blurred in the film. And during that time, the film actually continued to screen at other festivals. Mm-hmm. So, and although the women had issues with the film because basically they didn't have a lot of resources or power which happens a lot in documentary, but I think especially the film focuses on Yazidi women who were basically who were basically sexually enslaved by ISIS members mm-hmm. and who basically, after being removed from that situation, didn't have resources, had to rely on other people, right? And, and so basically didn't have a lot of money, power, status, any of that. And right. so we see that in all kinds of films where this is the case, but basically because they were complaining, their complaints were given no weight. Mm. And it took months. It took months and months and months for this to come out in the New York Times. At that point, the film had already been sold to to MTV Films. It had already been awarded, you know, sort of like a best, I think it's like, a, I don't know the exact title of the award, but it's basically for the best director of like a international documentary by right. Sundance. So mm-hmm. all these things happened. And in the time that it came out and the months after that, in the industry, there was not actually a lot of talk about this. So unlike the current controversy, which I feel like is, you know, the response has been tremendous with uh, right. Jihad Rehab. It's yeah. been, it's been immediate. It's been immediate. Like basically, you know, media, you know, with like within the industry, like, on, you know, among filmmakers, you know, everywhere it's been, you know, sort of brought up right away, which is really important. I think the problem is, is that, you know, although 
I helped to lead a campaign to bring awareness to this problem and mm-hmm. to sort of advocate with industry partners to take a look at this issue of informed consent, especially when you're looking at survivors of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that that is a huge thing. And how do you know that the filmmaker is taking the proper precautions, that, that the yeah. process for making the film is not further damaging and traumatizing the women who are being portrayed in it? How was this film made? You know, what was the process mm-hmm. of that happening? How long did it take? Who did they talk to? Was there sufficient understanding because of language or other issues happening? You know, what does it mean to have a, a like a trauma-informed survivor-centered process for mm-hmm. filmmaking in these situations? What are the best practices? There's actually best practices that have been developed by various organizations previous to this film coming out. Although the filmmakers said that, you know, they didn't know about some of these. Some of them came out afterwards, but actually some organizations have had practices in place prior to this in terms of how to work with survivors of sexual violence and conflict-related violence. So I think just the level of the lack of awareness around how problematic some of these films are. And someone actually told me as part of our, you know, campaign to bring awareness to these problems and to sort of get people to talk about, you know, what are the issues with these films? You know, why are we, why are we not questioning them? Why are we, you know, just programming Mm -hmm. them? And although they're causing these harms is that someone actually said, if anybody knew about the situation at the, basically at the camp where the women were staying, where they were so-called rescued from, if they were actually familiar with what was happening there, which has been reported all over the news, Mm -hmm. the, the premise of the film is actually completely false. It's impossible to actually like sneak into the camp and rescue women without the knowledge of people and kind of get them out of there secretively. That is not actually even that what happens at all. Right. No, there's actually, the camp is actually controlled by Syrian defense forces and you actually have to register. There's a place where you have to check in, you know, you have to like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be accompanied by people in order to even talk to the women. You know, there's this whole thing that happens that isn't even shown in this film that had people been aware of actually what was happening that has been reported extensively in the news prior to that, they would right. say the premise of this film is actually false. What right. is happening they- here that they're presenting isn't even actually true. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's like, why do we want to have certain boxes of how we want to fit people and communities mm-hmm. and issues into films and say, oh, okay, to the point where when you see something that is actually a comp- not a true narrative, that you would rather believe that than what is actually happening on the ground. Right, right. It doesn't right. occur to you like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe this isn't quite correct because it fits, it checks up all those boxes. Right. Of what it is that we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to be presented, what's supposed to be happening. And in the case of this film, you know, if, well, I, I think, I always think the issue already, it, it, by the time a film gets to festivals of provenance, such as a Sundance, I think about all the people who have seen that project, like from its inception to mm-hmm. spin- finishing and you look at all the funders and obviously they probably attended a lot of markets to help promote the film and get support for the film. And I always think about like all those people who saw that project leading up to it, getting finished. Where are the people who are speaking up then? You know, because, and because there are so many eyes on a project before it gets to a certain point. And when I, at my, my old gig, like that, I felt like that was part of my job. Like in addition to advising filmmakers on the application process was like spotting those problematic films, you know, 
that were clearly rooted in extractive storytelling and, and, you know, and making a case for those subjects, but also demanding that the filmmaker, if they were going to be part of our, our program, address those things like right then and there. And a lot of folks, they moved on to, they would go on to like other fiscal sponsors because those fiscal sponsors weren't asking those questions. Or in some cases where I worked, because it was a prominent filmmaker of note, we would just, they would just give in a pass. And, and some festivals are trying to, you know, are being more conscientious about their programming. But like, for example, Lana Garland and I, we co, we co facilitate a panel with European film programmers. And they were asking some of these specific questions, not about Sabaya, but like basically what are the red, what are the things that we need to be asking so we can be more informed so we don't program films that are, that are problematic or that can do harm. And they were asking specific questions in that regard. And it was like incredibly refreshing that just the fact that they were asking. So I believe that people are, there are people, a few people in the field who want to make changes before it even gets to this point where something gets distributed and gets the deal. But it's the responsibility of like these early gatekeepers that then other early gatekeepers are dropping the ball. So in my opinion. Yeah, so I think that's really important. I think it's really important that festival programmers, funders, distributors are asking early on about the ethical practices of the film and how it's being made and and the process and how people are being involved. And I also think that it's important to move away from this idea of how a film can be dramatically compelling. Because although I'm not 100% sure about this film, Sabaya, I've seen this happen in other circumstances and I have a feeling this is a little bit what happened, is that in order to get support for this film, originally it was going to be a different film with a slightly different story. But, you know, my impression is that that wasn't maybe the most dramatic story to be telling. And so the story shifted to sort of be this one about, you know, rescuing this women out of this camp, you know? So, you know, when funders and distributors and are looking at what is the story of the film? You know, who's the audience for it? You know, what's happening in the film? And there's this pressure for something that's more dramatic, something that's like, you know, what's the hook? Like, why is this going to be something spectacular? Why is this going to be something that has like, you know, show something that we've never seen before? All these kinds of questions underlying them is this idea that there has to be more drama and more, more of a, in a way you could say an entertainment value to the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think because of that, you know, there's this unconscious message the filmmakers are getting like, well, I have to find the the way to pitch this film that's going to make it like, you know, snazzier, that's going to make it like more attractive, that's going to make it seem like, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. Oh, wow, this the story is just like really amazing and really crazy mm -hmm. and this and that or whatever. That's not necessarily has any consideration that doesn't that process has no consideration to the people in the film and how it affects them. Exactly. And right. how it's, and how it's working with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and what kind of effect it has on the community that is right. showing right it's a it's a very mm -hmm. sort of narrow view of looking at what's important in the filmmaking process and i think that i mean obviously a filmmaker has a story that they want to tell but i think when you're there that your first obligation should be to your protagonist or your subjects in the film particularly there in like 
dangerous situations, whether it be physically dangerous situations or psychologically dangerous situations. Your first obligation, I think, should be to their to their to their care. I mean, yeah, definitely. And I think that whether they're in immediate danger or whether they're out of danger, but they've experienced tremendous amounts of trauma. trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a a lack of respect for people, especially if they're in if they're in another country, if they're impoverished, Mm -hmm. if basically they're facing they've traditionally faced a lot of oppression, Mm -hmm. if they're in countries that have been colonized, you know, all kinds of situations, if they're part of an ethnic or racial minority group that's been traditionally oppressed, Mm -hmm. there's this idea that somehow we don't have to take the same approach to respecting that person's rights and to looking at it from a human rights perspective, from like an individual rights perspective to say this person deserves all the respect and care and treatment as if they were someone, you know, who might have a lot more privileges. And so there's this unconscious thing of like, oh, well, we can just do this. It's okay. Because they're not going to know a lot of times they don't even see the films, which I find really horrifying and disturbing they don't even see the film that they're in. They're not, they're not shown it even after it comes out, which is what happened in, in the case of this film, Sabaya. Right. Um, you know, a number of the women and families had not even seen the film until after the New York Times article came out in September mm. and there was all this controversy. So the, so the extreme amount of disrespect to people mm-hmm. is just astounding. And then that's considered normal. That's considered okay. That's, and, and it's okay as part of, again, as I said, this part mm-hmm. of white dominant culture. Right. right. It's totally not okay to the people who, you know, who are being treated in this way from their perspective, from their cultural values. It's totally not okay. So why do we prioritize a certain way of doing things and say, well, it's okay because that's what we've always done? Who is we? Who is who we? Is we? Who is we? Thank you. And when you when you say this is the way it's always been done, you have to also ask the question, who's it being done to? Right. Yeah. And right. who impacted who's impacted by that. And I'm and also I'm not one thing I'm not saying is that gatekeepers have to like know like everything about a particular situation or story because like that's not possible. Like for example, like if I were reviewing Sabaya, like as far as like early on vetting process, I may not know the rules about how people have to sign in and sign into camps. It's so basically there's no way that so there's no way that these rescues possibly could have taken place as they have alleged to have taken, you know, alleged to have taken place. But I do know, have knowledge about consent and I can read, I can read in the application to know and understand like who has the power or a certain ethical questions aren't being addressed in the proposal, like those are the things that I can ask, you know, and be and exercise curiosity about. And if the answers aren't satisfying, you know, then an appropriate decision can be made. So there are ways that gatekeepers could be, and I hate the word gatekeeper, we need to come up with another, another word for that, but it could be to exercise a little bit more responsibility in this regard. I think that there's, as you said, some common sense things that people can attend to in the process of trying to understand something maybe you're not as familiar with. And mm-hmm. I think it's also totally legitimate to say, I'm completely ignorant of this issue. It and, seems and, that there's yeah. it seems that there's some concerns here because it's dealing with people who are subject to violence and trauma and you know sexual abuse. So therefore, maybe my level of care and concern and the degree to which I take a look at this needs to be higher. Mm-hmm. And I'm not familiar with what's happening in this Yazidi community. So maybe I need to talk to somebody who is more familiar. 
yeah. in order to have a greater level of care and concern and protection. And so just by looking at the subject matter of the film, you know, what is it touching mm-hmm. upon? You know, if it's a film about, let's say, you know, you know, people who are doing, you know, shoreline cleanups because they want to remove all the plastic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, maybe there's some political issues that might be happening between different groups doing that or what have you, you know, but there's nobody being harmed by that. So do you need some special, you know, vetting of that? Not necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some other issues that could come into play, but you're not talking about things that are fundamentally about people's experiences in which they're experiencing a lot of trauma and violence. Exactly. So that's where common sense needs to come in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, maybe with that, we need to spend more time thinking about that. And so, but like I said, you know, I think it circles back around to that concept of if we don't question the norms and standards and who set them and for what purposes they were originally created and doing to who, making who the other, making who the subject. Because if that was happening to someone's own community, you would bet that they would ask all these questions. Exactly. Right? Exactly. If, if you're talking about this not being in some other place with some other people that you don't necessarily connect with or identify with, if this was about, you know, someone's own hometown and the people that they personally knew and recognized, you'd bet they'd be asking a bunch of questions about how this film was made. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, I feel like we could we could easily do a part two, but we've been chatting for a minute now, so it is time to wrap. But we always like to give our guests the the last word so or words so any final thoughts that you have anything that we didn't discuss today that you know you like to get into a little bit or even if it's just a, a plug for your website and the work that you do yeah i think i want to i don't think that you know since we're since we're rolling out a campaign around our article the power of personal documentary films mm-hmm. i don't think we need to get into that in so much detail in here in in this particular podcast because there I will think, be a lot more about that, y'all. <laughs> yeah, there'll be there'll be more about that sort of as as we do the actual campaign itself. But I think what I do want to say about that campaign that we're working on is that one of the main ideas behind it is that I think we have to stop having two different conversations in the industry. And I think that's relevant to this podcast and this conversation we're having today, which is that I don't think it's helpful to have a separate conversation that happens among BIPOC people and then a conversation that happens in the larger mixed public that includes everyone and that there aren't things that directly translate from one to the other. Mm. And so it doesn't mean that we need to share all of our private conversations with each other. Sometimes people need support. Sometimes there's very sensitive situations or issues that have come up that need to be kept confidential, obviously. You know, there's certain kinds of things that people need a certain sense of safety around. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a lot of themes and a lot of issues that come up that stay within the conversation of BIPOC filmmakers Mm. and that don't actually directly get into the larger public conversation. And I think we, on some of those topics, we need to be having one conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that among that is this idea that our industry is really deeply rooted in and influenced by white supremacy culture and racism. And that's the legacy of America, actually. So it's not unique to the documentary industry. It's actually part of the legacy of our country. And so I think if we don't acknowledge that and start having a conversation about white supremacy culture, about racism, about the legacy of, you know, how documentary filmmaking actually was established and what it was used for and, you know, this complex history of like how, how it came to be. I think that we're going to be 
we're going to have a difficult time resolving problems. Right. Because the problem is not about diversity, equity, inclusion. It's about these other subjects. And it's about who holds power. And it's about where resources go and where they have gone and why. And it's about these other subjects that I think we have to just deal with directly and not be afraid and not attack each other around it. Not mm-hmm. uh, My assumption is that, you know, most people who want to be in documentary want to make a positive change in the world. Otherwise, you'd go into narrative and make a whole lot more money, right? <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> it's like, why would you do documentary, you know, unless you had a positive intention for what you want in the world? And so I think that given that, my trust and my faith is that we can do this together. We can have these difficult conversations. We can start talking about the real problems and issues that are happening, not shy away from them. And we can move forward together. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my hope and my dream, right? Maybe it's a little unrealistic, but, you know, it's not about calling out or shaming anyone. It's not about like, you know, putting anyone down. It's actually about the fact that I trust and have faith that people are in documentary because they believe in something good. And we just need to start being more realistic about what is happening in our industry and work together to deal with the real problems and not be afraid to say, this is what's actually going on. Right. This is, this is why, you know, BIPOCs are feeling hurt or, or, you know, not heard or disrespected and not kind of dance around that and use sort of polite language in order to talk about some of these things. Yeah. Like do the, do the real, be willing to do the real unpacking of all that. Yeah. And I think in some of our article, The the Power of Personal Documentary Films, we get into some really specific examples of things that people have experienced, things that people have dealt with, things that we know are going on in the industry, but people don't actually want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to start getting into specifics as to how that happens. And so we don't have time on this podcast to get into the specifics, but then that's my pitch for, you know, (laughs) yes, (laughs) staying in touch and following up to learn what some of that is. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jennifer. And then Tell us the website. So our website is representmedia.org. It's R-E hyphen presentmedia.org. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for being on the show today. This was like great and there will be more to come. Thanks so much, Tony. I really appreciate you today and also Renell behind the scenes. Jennifer asks many things from those of us who work in the documentary field. We must interrogate how we measure, impact, and change. If you're making films with survivors of sexual violence and conflict, you have an ethical responsibility to do no harm and exercise cultural humility. Lastly, we must ensure we have the right conversations with the right people and understand the very different roles and responsibilities of BIPOCs and non-BIPOCs in righting systemic wrongs. The next episode is a very special and unique conversation between myself, Jennifer, and Renelle Schubert. It was this conversation that planned the seed for Renelle to plan the panel that she moderated at International Documentary Association's Getting Real 2022 entitled Collateral Damage and Institutional Repair. We hope you listen. Thank you for listening today. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us the five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. 
And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories.